Turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. We'll finish the book of Jonah this morning. We sang that song, I will stand on every promise of your word. We do believe that the Bible is God's inerrant, which is perfect revelation to man. We believe every part of it. That's the way Jesus handled the Bible. Even Jonah, he treated as a real historical figure. There are lots of good reasons. You know, I spent a few weeks not too long ago up upstairs with the, the kids' class, kind of walking through why we can trust our Bibles. There's lots of good reasons. There's lots of historical arguments. There's lots of logical reasons to accept the Bible as God's authoritative revelation of Himself. But if what, what if someone lacked the, the, the capacity maybe even the historical background to kind of put these arguments together. Could that person believe and trust in the authority of God's Word? That's the question that Jonathan Edwards asked. He was a 17th or 1700s era preacher living in New England, and he wondered as, as they were sharing the gospel with their, their Native American neighbors, can, can these Native Americans who, not for lack of intellectual capability, but lack of historical background, they're not going to understand these arguments about manuscripts and transmission and all these logical reasons why they should believe in the authority of God. What about, what about them? Can they have trust in the authority of God's Word? Well, Edwards' answer was yes. Yes, because confidence in God's Word is not relegated only to a few highly trained scholars. But this confidence is available equally to all believers, Edwards argued. His argument was this. There's a self-attesting affirmation of the truthfulness and reliability of the Bible. In other words, through the Scriptures, God so reveals Himself and the Spirit illuminates the mind and the heart and a person perceives that this is a, a supernatural work. When a person sees the glory of God in the pages of Scripture, it testifies in and of itself to the reliability and authority of those Scriptures. And so we see that in, in the book of Jonah. One of the reasons we see this self-attesting glory is that God reveals His nature and His character in the book of Jonah. And we see that as God reveals Himself, if it were merely a, a, a document produced by ancient Israelites, if this were a document produced by Jonah, I don't think he would have made up God the way he did. Right? I think he would have written about the God that Jonah wants. I think he would have, you know, we've said this before, but created God in his own image. In Jonah's case, it would have been a God with the same prejudices against the same people. He always shows his covenant faithfulness to me and to Israel, and he never shows it to the nations. But that's not what we have. That's not what we have. We have the book of Jonah, and we see the glory of God in the pages of Scripture as he puts on display his grace, his mercy, his patience, his faithfulness, and his justice, and he demonstrates it not only to Israel, but he demonstrates it to the enemies of Israel, the Ninevites. 
So let's look at the text together then and see how God reveals himself. God reveals his glory in the pages of Scripture. Number one, there's two points this morning, two kind of movements in the text. The first point is God is merciful, merciful by nature. It is who he is. Now, we, you know, we've been walking through the book of Jonah, and, and kind of when you get to the end, it's a little bit easier at this point than it would have been at the beginning to kind of zoom out and see the structure of the book of Jonah. We, we see that there's these parallel chapters in, in the book. So chapters 1 and 3 are, are really similar to each other, right? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. It, 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 so, so it's parallel and that the same command is given in chapter 3. Right, and then what happens? Well, in chapter 1, he responds. He responds by disobeying. But through that, God not only demonstrates his mercy to Jonah, but what does he do? He demonstrates his mercy to these pagan, idol-worshiping sailors. Chapter 3, the word comes. Jonah responds, this time better. And what does God do? He demonstrates his mercy to those pagan, idol-worshiping, evil, wicked, violent Ninevites. So one and three are, are running in parallel lanes. Two and four are running in parallel lanes as well. It, it, you know, it might not seem that way initially because chapter two is like poetry. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. But, but what do you have? You have God, Jonah being a, a recipient of God's mercy, and he responds to that mercy. In chapter two, he responds really well. Right, a psalm of thanksgiving. He's praising the Lord that he has he has inherited this, or not inherited, he has received this mercy when he went down to the depths of the sea, called out, the Lord heard him and answered him. He received mercy and he responded. In chapter 4, then the, the Ninevites have received mercy and Jonah responds. Right? Except this response is not thankfulness, is it? Because it was mercy pointed in a different direction. So even the, the structure of the book, here's why I say that, even the structure of the book serves to highlight the, the crazy thing that we read in chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. We should have chapter 2 in our mind as, as Jonah had praised the Lord for this great mercy. And then the mercy goes in a different direction in chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He was angry. The recipient of grace who was thankful for it is now upset that it has gone towards his enemies. When, interestingly, in the, in the flow of the book, when God's anger stops, Jonah's begins. Right? He gladly proclaimed in chapter 2 that salvation belongs to the Lord, and now that God has sovereignly exercised that salvation in a different direction, Jonah is not so happy about that. You know, 120,000 people repenting and believing on your message. That's a preacher's dream, right? That's Pentecost times 40. I mean, I can't imagine that. And, and so it, we're, we're meant to feel that. Like, really, the prophet's mad that all these people responded to the message? So what does Jonah do? He's angry. He's exceedingly angry. And he prays to the Lord. Right? We've seen this in Jonah, like the initial step is right, and then he sort of blows it, right? So like, you, 
Dave Pallison wrote in his book on, on anger that when we're angry, we typically talk to the wrong person, right? We maybe talk to the person that cut us off and we're, that's the wrong person. We talk to ourselves, and we get ourselves really worked up and angry as we rehearse the anger in our mind or, or we talk to others about what happened and we gossip. Well, at least Jonah doesn't do one of, right? He, he prays, but we see that even in his prayer, that he's all, he's all kinds of messed up, right? His, his message is, is totally off. And we see first a, a couple things about Jonah's uh, statement here. Jonah is short-sighted. Jonah is short-sighted because he, he's assuming that God should be more like, more like me, right? He looks, he, he, he looks at God and he says, my ways are higher than your ways. One author put it this way, Appointing himself theological advisor to the Almighty, Jonah pronounces himself completely out of sympathy with divine policy. Right? He, he thinks he can advise the Lord. He, he, can, he can give policy suggestions to the Lord. And so he's short-sighted. His anger is directed at God because God has the audacity to demonstrate steadfast love not only to His people Israel, not only to Jonah, but to the nations. In Jonah's view, God's actions are completely unreasonable. Nineveh deserved judgment, and it should have been delivered to them. In fact, he reverts in verse 2 to a couple of uh, childish arguments. You may recognize these if you're a parent. I told you so, and this is why I didn't want to go in the first place. Right? Look there in verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said? Right, there it is, I told you so when I was yet in my country. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious God, a merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is actually the first place in Jonah where it explicitly tells you why he ran. Right, As those who have kind of understood the story of Jonah. Many of us have read that several times. We kind of can read that back into chapter 1, but actually, if you're reading this for the first time, this would be the most explicit statement for why Jonah ran. And he actually defends his sinful choice. I told you this was going to happen. That's why I ran, because I knew you were a gracious and a merciful and a patient God. And that if I obeyed you, this is exactly what you do. You would relent from your anger you would forgive these people. You may recognize Jonah's words here. right? You may recall them from other places in Scripture that he's, he's gracious, you know, word orders mixed around a little bit in some of these places where it shows up. But he's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, uh, Exodus 34 says, and faithfulness. Right, so this is a common refrain that's used of God. It's first, it first shows up in Exodus chapter 34 when Moses says he, he wants to see the glory of the Lord. He asks God, let, let me see your glory. And God says, I'm going to let my goodness pass before you. Right, what's the glory of the Lord? It's, it's the goodness of the Lord on display. Right, I'm going to let my goodness pass before you. But you can't look full bore onto God and survive. He's, he's that holy. You, you just can't. And so he says, I'm, I'll cover you and you'll kind of see me as I walk by. And so what it says in Exodus 34 is that God proclaims His name. I'm going to proclaim my name to you. In other words, I'm going to reveal to you who I am and what I'm about. So in 
uh, Exodus 34, it says this, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, or the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So in other words, when, when God proclaims his name and he's going to reveal who he is to Moses. When you think Yahweh, think mercy, think grace, think patience, think faithfulness, and think justice. This is is who I am. And of course, in the context of Exodus, Israel has just blown it big time, right? Exodus 32 Right? They, they give themselves over to idol worship and all kinds of debauchery and sin. And they should have been destroyed. But God demonstrated to them mercy. And if they had been destroyed, if God wasn't the covenant-keeping God that He reveals Himself to be in Exodus 34, if He wasn't that, there is no Israel and there is no Jonah. So Jonah's short-sighted. He's saying, I wish you weren't this way. Jonah's also selfish. Right? We've seen this. He's perfectly willing to rejoice in God's grace towards Israel. God's grace towards him. Yes, please. But he doesn't want it pointed out towards the nations, particularly a city in Assyria, the enemy of Israel. It's, It's ironic that the cause of Jonah's discontent is the goodness of God. The same goodness that spared Israel, the same goodness that spared Jonah. If you look in in Jonah's prayer, actually, it's uh, eight times in in the ESV anyways. It's me, my, or I. I knew this was going to happen. I told you this was going to happen. That's why I ran away. It's a self-centered view of grace and his prayer betrays his own heart. Jonah is so angry that he asked God to to kill him. There in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to live than to die. He would rather opt for death, though these words sort of echo the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings. It's not actually boosting Jonah's credibility, you know, in his mind, he might be like, hey, I'm just like Elijah. We're, we're really, we're, we kind of look at what Elijah was dealing with, fleeing from Jezebel, life is on the line, famished, uh, you know, sunstroke, and, and he's like, you know what, I think I'm done. And, and Jonah just preached, and 120,000 people got saved, and he says, I think I'm, I think I'm done, I think I'll die. So what he might think is kind of elevating him in our, in our eyes, it really is like, you're mad about what? Right? So God asks this probing question in verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? This is a rebuke from the Lord that Jonah just does not speak to quite yet. So what's the point in these first four verses? The point is this, that God is merciful by nature. And we see what, what, what the author does here is highlight the mercy of God by contrasting God with Jonah. 
right? There's this comparison, and it'll continue in verses 5 through 11 as well, but there's this comparison between Jonah and the Lord that serves to highlight the, the character and the nature of God. Jonah's, Jonah is short-sighted and selfish, but God, He is gracious. He is gracious. He has chosen towards the Ninevites for His own purposes and according to His own will to withhold His wrath. And that's you know, a pretty good view of grace. It's, it's, it's God granting blessing to those who have accrued wrath. Right? Sometimes we say, oh, grace is undeserved kindness. Well, sort of, but undeserved sort of implies that maybe you're neutral in that. We're like, we're on this end of the spectrum. Right? We've earned wrath, but He shows kindness. He's demonstrated it here to the Ninevites, and that's one of the reasons Jonah is so upset. God is gracious. God is merciful. You know, again, sort of the, the quick definition of mercy is, is God withholding from you that which you deserve? And, and that's, that's true. That's a, that's a good, quick kind of definition. But, but the word, I think, is deeper than that. It means more than that. It's, God being merciful means more than He exercises mercy. It speaks to the motive behind what He does. It speaks to His compassion towards the undeserving. It speaks to the heart of God being moved to help the helpless, to even help the rebel and the sinner and the wicked person. You and me. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is slow to anger. Right? Some of your Bibles may say He's long-suffering. He's patient. The, the, the word, interestingly enough, for slow to anger is long of nose, right? And it kind of alludes to this Hebrew idiom that we, we, we may understand, actually, when you think about a bull getting upset, right? Well, his nostrils are flaring, right? We even talk about a person's nostrils flaring. Well, well the idea is he's slow to get to that anger. He's slow to get there. His nostrils don't flare quickly in that sense. So to have a, a, a long nose is to be slow to express anger. We, maybe a, maybe a, a more commonly used phrase in our vernacular is, he's got a long fuse. Right? We know what it is to have a short fuse. <laughs> he's got a long fuse. God is gracious and merciful slow to anger, and He's abounding in steadfast love. If you were here when we went through Jonah, you remember that Hebrew word hesed? And sometimes translated mercy. It's sometimes translated loving kindness or steadfast love. They're all the, the best attempts at describing the, the covenantal commitment that God makes and keeps with His people. He is faithful to do all that He has said He will do. He's going to keep His end of the agreement, even when it would be completely reasonable and even expected for God to break His end of the agreement. He holds fast because He's steadfast. He's faithful. And God doesn't just have a little bit of hesed on the side. Right? He's abounding in steadfast Love, He is overflowing with covenant faithfulness with Hesed. It speaks to His love, His faithfulness, all of who He is. 
He seeks the well-being of His people, not because they deserve it, because it's God's nature. It's, it's who He is. He acts for the good of others. And that's why Jonah is so upset. That's meant to be reserved for Israel. And now God has invited nations into this. So we can see the from Exodus 34, from Jonah, from the way this is repeated. Dan read it this morning. That's why we picked Psalm 145. We're usually kind of going in order. We got a little bit out of order because I wanted Dan to read Psalm 145 because it repeats it there. Now contrast this with the way God reveals Himself in other ways. He says in Lamentations 3.33, For He does not afflict from His heart or grieve the children of men. Or Ezekiel 33.11, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I have no pleasure in the death, death of the wicked. Well, what does He desire from the wicked? But, but that they turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but Micah 17, 18, or 7, 18 says, He delights in steadfast love. He delights in steadfast love. You know, God is not like us. Right? He, he's, he's, he's creator. We are creation. But, but in seeking to communicate Himself to us, He reveals Himself this way. It is, his first impulse is mercy. His first impulse is grace and patience. Throughout the Old Testament, He's provoked to anger. It never says He had to be provoked to mercy. That's why the Puritans, they're borrowing from Isaiah 28 where He says He's going to judge Israel in and God says, this is going to be a strange thing because I'm going to judge you. The Puritans called this the, the, the strange work as opposed to his natural work. Not, not strange as in when we hear that we think weird. Right? But what they were saying is, is what God reveals here in Jonah, that his first impulse is grace and mercy and kindness and patience. And... and, and we're not, we're not like going soft here, right? We read Exodus 34. He will not withhold justice. But here's, here's what we're saying. If it were not so, if it were not this way, we would have been obliterated yesterday. That's all we're saying. He does demonstrate His justice and His wrath, and He will be provoked to anger. But He is patient, and He's gracious, and He's full of mercy. And because of that, we get another breath. What a great God we serve. We have no claim on Him. We have nothing to offer. We have no good works to testify to our own goodness. There's nothing in us, again, that, that, that should have moved Him to kindness. That's why it has to be based on His very nature, not based on our goodness, not based on our works, but because of who He is and who He has revealed Himself to be, that He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is the heart of God on display. And so, so what, why, why go through all? So here's what we have then. Jonah wanted the Ninevites destroyed. Right? He wanted the Ninevites destroyed. But what do, we, what do we learn about God? He does not delight in the death of the wicked. So the thing that would have brought God no delight, he could, have, he could have done it and would have been completely justified. 
Should have. Jonah would have loved. But when God demonstrates mercy and kindness, Jonah hates it. So what you have in Jonah 4 then is this deep gulf that separates the prophet from his Lord. God relents of anger, Jonah gets angry. God shows concern for the nations, Jonah wants them destroyed. God had every right to be angry, but he relented. Jonah doesn't have any right to be angry, but he persists. Right? You just see this constant contrast between Jonah and God. He persists in his anger. We see that in uh, verses 5 through 11. Point number two, God is, God is merciful in his very nature. So then what happens? He demonstrates that mercy to the wicked. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah goes out, right? He, he, he kind of passes through, preaches his message. They respond. He just sort of like keeps on going through town and kind of goes up on the hill. And he's going to sit there and he's going to see what will happen of the city. Based on what we know about Jonah, likely he wants to go up there and wait 40 days, see if maybe God changes his mind. Or maybe this is some kind of fake repentance from Nineveh, and I'll actually get to see them destroyed in the first place. Or after all. And so while he's out there waiting, the text says he builds this booth for himself. That would have been like interwoven branches and leaves. And, and, and it would have been pretty good shade for a few days till those leaves begin to wither and and crack and fall off. And so God, as this shelter becomes less and less effective, God causes a plant then to grow up over Jonah. There in verse 6, He appoints the plant. Maybe this would have been some kind of vine that would have grown up over His shelter. And these are living leaves, so they're going to provide even better shade. And look how verse 6 ends. God appoints his plan, it grows up over him, it provides the shade that he, that he needs out there. And verse 6 says, so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plants. Okay, so, so to, to recap, Jonah's salvation, yes, I'll rejoice in that. Right? The plant, yes, rejoice in that. Nineveh getting grace, no. That, that's going to make me angry. Right, so... We see this, again, that Jonah's sort of selfish heart on display here. We also see the sovereignty of God in, in creation. We've talked about this. Right? And he's the God of, the, he's the creator of the sea and the dry land. Well, we've seen him control the sea. Now we see him control the dry land. Vine drives up. Now he appoints a worm to destroy that thing. Not only that, that he, he appoints a scorching wind. Right? Whoever's appointing all this rain. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so he, he appoints a, a scorching wind. And he's, he's miserable again, right? The plant's gone. The, the plant's dead. So you can see that God has sort of delivered Jonah from his calamity, which is, which is the same word that's been used of like calamities coming upon Nineveh. So Jonah's in this bad spot. God sends his plan. It, it rescues him from his calamity, and then it's taken away from him, right? And this Jonah's hut now becomes 
like an oven. The, the sun's beating down on him. He's growing weary. And for the second time, Jonah asks to die, assuming that's a better outcome. And so just like in chapter 2, when God sort of drove Jonah to the depths of the sea to cause Jonah to turn and remember and to, to call out on him, so now he, he's driving Jonah again, and Jonah's disobedience and rebellion, driving him to the end of himself to, to, to help him see God's gracious and merciful character. And so Jonah gets a, a little bit of a foretaste He's sort of thrown back into the heat, so to speak. And it's kind of a small taste of the disaster that Jonah hoped would fall on the other people. And it provides the perfect opportunity for the Lord to teach Jonah that he will show mercy on whom he will show mercy. On whomever he chooses, he will demonstrate mercy. And so God makes his his move there in verse 9. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And this time, Jonah's ready with an answer, right? He defiantly says yes, right? We all know what the right answer to that is. And Jonah says, yes, I'm angry enough even to die. And so the the Lord has sort of laid out this, this trap, not a trap and intended to harm Jonah, but a trap intended to, to reveal Jonah's heart and to instruct Jonah. And Jonah walks right into it. Yeah, I have right to be angry about the plant. Yeah, I'm so angry about it, I deserve even to die. And so that's sort of the setup for God to have the last word here in verses 10 and 11. Let's, Let's read it together. And the Lord said, yes, oh, yeah, sorry, I went back to the same line. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. So again, Jonah sort of walked into this thing, yeah, I should care about the plant. Well, Jonah didn't plant the plant. He didn't water the plant. He didn't labor over the plant. He did, he did nothing to make, make the plant grow. In fact, the plant came in one day and left the next. It was a very short-lived uh, experience. He hasn't invested a lot into this plant, did nothing to produce it, and only lasted a short time. And so it's interesting there. I want you to see in verse 10, that God uses this word, what happened to the plant? It, it perished. It perished. Right? If you remember from, from Jonah, what, what was threatening the sailors in chapter 1, verse 6? They, they were about to perish, right? And God delivered them from that. And what was happening in chapter 3, verse 9 with the Ninevites? Well, what, what were they threatened with? They were, they were going to perish because of the judgment of God. So God is pointing out that, that you're concerned that this plant perished. You're, you're so concerned about that, but you do not care that the Ninevites might have perished. You're concerned about the plant perishing, not concerned about the Ninevites perishing. And the implication in this passage too is that the things that Jonah did not do for this plant, God does actually do for His creation, including those wicked Ninevites. God created and sustained them. 
even though they were rebels against him and deserving of his just wrath. He was their creator. And God says there's 120,000 people in Nineveh who, who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. I think God is using his role as creator and the existence of his creation to drive this point home to Jonah. You care about the plant. You at least care about these innocent cattle. I know you hate the Ninevites, but hey, there's cattle there. They, they're more important than this plant. Right? They would have been destroyed if the full force of God's wrath had rained down on Nineveh the way they deserved. But in God's eyes, these, these Ninevites are more important than these cattle. They're people made in the image of God. And they don't know their right hand from their left. They're lost. They're lost. They did not know God. They're darkened in their understanding, dead in their trespasses and sins. See, Jonah's concern for the plant was purely driven by self-interest, while God's concern for Nineveh was driven by genuine concern and love. And his concern is tied to the fact that they are indeed his creation. They belong to God. They belong to him. Imagine a, a farmer who has invested hundreds and uh, uh, thousands of hours into their fields and their, their crops, and they've kept disease away and sprayed for bugs and watered faithfully, and a, and a hailstorm comes through. That guy's going to be way more upset than I am, right? I can't have another insurance claim on my car, but um, he's going to be way upset. Why? Because he's invested. He's invested in that. And so God is saying to Jonah, I, I've created them, I've sustained them, I have every right to choose to demonstrate my mercy if I, if I want to. So the implication is clear. If Jonah cares about the plant, God is saying, should I not care about Nineveh? And shouldn't the prophet grant the right, as if he can grant something, but assume that God has the right to care about these people. You know, we aren't told actually how Jonah responds. We can, we can guess, but we'd just, be, we'd just be guessing. And it'd probably detract from the text if I tried to guess. In fact, I, I think it's, I actually like that the Bible is just consistently unconcerned with sort of filling in my curiosities. It is much more concerned with revealing the character of God. This is not, this is not about Jonah. That's why Jonah's response is not recorded, because it's not about him. It's a book primarily about God's grace and mercy. And so you're left, if, as you finish the book of Jonah, you might for a second think, well, I wonder what happened. But you're left with, with the words of God ringing in your ear, shouldn't I care about Nineveh? And the answer, of course, is yes. Yes, he should. Because they're people created and sustained by God. And he chose to demonstrate mercy to them. Jonah, on the other hand, is a, a precursor to the Pharisees in Jesus' day who were aghast 
Like Jonah, the Pharisees were angry with Jesus when he did kind and compassionate acts, actually. Jesus mocked him in John chapter 10, like, what good thing did I do today that you're going to hate me for? That's my paraphrase. And here's what we, what we see in, in Jonah. God's generous grace, His mercy towards the wicked, His concern for those who are ungodly is not cause for the way Jonah responded. It's cause for rejoicing. It's cause for rejoicing. One commentator said it this way, Jonah had no right to God's favor, so who is he to deny it to anyone else? Now Robert Murray McShane said this, lest we sort of put ourselves on a pedestal and say, man, Jonah, what a fool. He said, the seeds of all sins are in my heart. The seeds of all sin are in my heart, and perhaps all the more dangerously that I do not see them. So it's good for us as a a church to be warned of of the, the, the potential of this hardness of heart. Maybe it's more prevalent in me than I want to admit. And we want to reflect God's character here. We want to become like Christ. So when God says, should I not care? The answer is, of course I should care. So we can ask God, we can pray and ask Him to make us like Christ, that we would, we would delight in the, like J.O. always says, like, uh, Lord, help us to love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate. Right, that we would delight in the wicked receiving mercy because we are those who have received mercy in Christ. The Lord is merciful by nature and He chooses then to demonstrate His mercy to His enemies. The Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He relents from disaster. So we aren't surprised then, as we wrap up this morning, we aren't surprised then that when God takes on flesh, the Son of God becomes Uh, uh, man, the God-man, perfect, uh, fully man, fully God, and that He is the perfect representation of the Father, He's the perfect representation of the Son, that he, He perfectly puts on display the attributes and the nature of God. What do we find in Christ? That He too is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. In fact, the focal point of Scripture is these things being seen and demonstrated through Jesus Christ. God puts His glory on display by demonstrating His nature and His character, and He's done it clearly in Jesus Christ. And we see God's commitment to being gracious and merciful. We see it in Jesus Christ as He willingly laid down His life. No man took His life from Him. He willingly laid it down granting mercy and grace, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life for those who turn from their sin, who confess their sin to God and rely fully on the work of Jesus. He will forgive you. Embrace Him by faith. For those of you who have trusted in Christ this morning, we rejoice in this. We rejoice that God is gracious to the wicked because we, we are the ones who have recognized ourselves and in our own hearts as those who are wicked. And so we praise God for His glorious grace in the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing hallelujah for the cross. And that will be sort of a fitting conclusion to the sermon. Let's pray. Lord God, we do praise You for the cross, recognizing our own inability, our own sin, 
Lord, may we please you in the way that we rejoice in the gospel of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.